Amen. Man, this is a messianic psalm. It's uh, especially the middle part. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. That is, of course, pointing to Christ and his uh, the time of his crucifixion where those uh, events did happen. So we thank the Lord for uh, the truth that is found in his word and how scripture always comes to pass. Amen. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning on this Lord's Day, uh, thanking you for the grace that is found in the person and work of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that Christ came to redeem man from his sins, to save man from his sins. As the scripture proclaims, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And Father, we thank you that that is the work that Christ came to do. To save us, to rescue us from the bondage and the, the tyranny of sin. From the oppression of sin. Lord, sin is the greatest oppression that man faces. Sin is the greatest force in this world that keeps man from worshiping you rightly, to keep man from serving you rightly, to keep man from loving his neighbor. Lord, it is because of the oppression of sin. It is because of the deceit of sin. It is because of the foolishness of sin. And Lord, we thank you this morning that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, for this express reason to provide man a way out of sin. But Father, in our rebellion, we reject the Christ of God. We reject the Messiah of God. We reject the work of Christ on the cross. And we rather seek our own devices and our own wisdom. And we rather seek our own way instead of the way of Christ. And Lord, this is why we see the world the way it is. So, Father, I come this morning as I pray for our, our church, for uh, our church members who are not here this morning, for those who will hear this uh, message. Lord, that we look to Christ and be saved, that we point people to Christ and be saved. The only way out of their misery is through bowing the knee to Christ in repentance. As we read in the catechism, turning their ways to you turning their hearts to you in salvation for Lord unrepentant people will not inherit the kingdom of God no one can pray them into heaven at their funeral no one can sing them into heaven no one can cry or sentimentalize their life into heaven Lord only through repentance and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ can one be saved from their sins and have eternal life. So Lord I pray this morning. That us as a church. That we as members of the church. That we proclaim this great message of the gospel. The freedom that comes in serving Christ. The freedom from 
sin. It's not that we're not going to sin, but we're no longer under sin's tyranny, under, under sin's rule. Sin has no mastery over us, as Paul uh, proclaimed, because we don't walk after the flesh, but we walk according to the spirit. As we walk according to the spirit, Lord, the, uh, the flesh has no mastery over us. Sin has no mastery over us. Sin is not our taskmaster anymore. So, Lord, help us, help us as believers to fight, to fight against sin, to push against the temptations that lead us to sin, to not yield to temptation. Two, as Paul described in Colossians 3, mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Help us, Lord, to fight on our knees in prayer and to, and to fight with open Bibles and to fight with prayers of the saints and encouragement from the saints, the ordinary means of grace that you have given us. Lord, I pray this morning for our nation. There's insanity going on in our world. And, Lord, I, I pray for repentance from our leaders, government leaders, government officials, those who legislate evil, those who propose evil, those who have evil and demonic schemes. Lord, we pray against them. We pray that they repent. And Lord, we pray also for our um, law enforcement officers who out keeping us protected keeping us safe that lord you empower them by your spirit by common grace to to do their jobs and to serve their communities well to your glory lord we pray also for our e local elected leaders our city councilmen our mayors our county commissioners our local school boards Lord, that they don't allow insanity to, to reign in our streets and in the public square. Lord, they allow justice and righteousness, true justice and true righteousness uh, to reign through legislation and through proposals. Lord, we're praying for the Spirit of God to rule and reign in the hearts of all of your people that we, as we go out into our jobs and into homes and to the public square, Lord, that we live as believers, that we live as Christians are to live, that we live godly lives in the midst of a perverse culture, and that when opportunities present itself, Lord, that we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the bad news that all men are sinners in our need of salvation and the good news that there is a savior, that there is a redeemer who has come and his name is Jesus. Lord, we pray for our sister churches, um, the faithful brethren leading and shepherding the other churches in this area. Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Christian Fellowship, Redeemer, Iron City, Mountain View, First Baptist, Lionville, and other churches, Lord, other men, 
leading faithfully, that you fill them with your spirit to preach and to shepherd well and their elders and their deacons and their members that we all grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and love and serve our churches, build strong Christian community together. As the world tries to encroach on the church, Lord, let us grow closer together as believers, closer together as Christian families, and to love, honor, and serve each other, and to be faithful to your church, to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to preserving and proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God that cannot be overturned. Help us to hold fast to your truth as men and shepherd our flocks in doing the same thing. And Father, I pray as I preach this word from Galatians, preaching about our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has come at the fullness of time, that you fill me with your spirit, Lord, to be faithful to this text and to, to preach it well. And that you send your spirit to illuminate the truths in this passage to us this morning. May you be pleased by what is spoken this morning as we speak your words. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Men, let us turn to Galatians. Uh, our main text is the fourth chapter, verses four through seven. I think I put in the service details for a good context. Uh, you can go back to the third, uh, the end of the third chapter, beginning at, I think, verse 26. And our message this morning is Christ has redeemed us with, with again. Uh, talking about the birth of Christ and what he came to do. He came to redeem us. He has redeemed us. And in this passage, we see that he did it when the fullness of time had come. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And my favorite phrases, when the fullness of time had come. Just at the right time, just at the appointed time, Christ was born. Just at the right time, God sent his son into the world. And Paul, in this context, is speaking of the Christian as sons and heirs of Christ. And he's speaking in masculine language uh, about sons, but he's speaking of uh, men and women, brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's, the context of Galatians, Galatians was written to the church in Galatia that had given in to what we call, uh, there were Judaizers that came into the Galatian church to try to get the Jews the, who had converted to Christianity to still practice uh, Jewish law. And so Paul told them that this was practicing another gospel. If you look at the very first chapter, just as context, look at uh, Galatians 1. 
And this is why Paul wrote this uh, letter. Because the Judaizers were coming in and telling them that they needed to practice Judaism when Paul had just preached to them. These false teachers had come in and tried to add to the gospel. And so this is what Paul says and again this is given the context of what this book is about since we're jumping right into the middle of it. He says I marvel you know, he gives his standard greetings in the beginning, as he always does. And then he gets down to business here in verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who pervert you and I'm sorry, who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Or the Greek word is anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again. So he's repeating it for emphasis. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I not persuade men of God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. So Paul was telling the Galatians that if anyone comes to you with something else, adding to the gospel, some other requirement, that let that person be accursed, anathema. Now it's a very strong word in the Greek that someone would do that. Paul says, even if an angel from heaven came and did it, let them be accursed because that is how pure the gospel should be. So you have false brethren coming in. He said this in two and four. False brethren secretly brought in to spy out the liberty that they had in Christ. And they wanted to add more burdens to the gospel. They wanted to say that Gentile Christians must be circumcised. That's what the Judaizers were telling these, these Gentiles. The Judaizers were telling the Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised. When that was not a requirement for Gentiles. And it was no longer a requirement for Jews because Christ came to do away with that. Because the circumcision reported to Christ. So the Judaizers were coming in telling these Gentile Christians that they needed to, in essence, become Jews by being circumcised. And Paul says, no, these are false brethren. They're false brethren. They're coming in and they're adding to the gospel. And Paul says there's no return to the law. That a man cannot be justified by obeying the law, but only justified through Christ. And then in verse chapter 3, he talks about being justified by faith. Because it says here in chapter 3 and verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. 
Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun the spirit? Are you now being uh, made perfect by the flesh through circumcision? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So he was he was telling them. You receive. Hearing by faith, not I'm sorry, you see faith by hearing of faith, not by doing works of the flesh, not by circumcision, because circumcision was a work of the flesh. It was a fleshly work. Then he says in verse 10 of chapter three, for as many as are of the works of the law, which circumcision was, are under the curse. For as written curse of everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the law, the book of the law to do them. So in other words, he was saying, if you're going to practice circumcision, which is part of the law, guess what? You have to obey all the law. And it's not possible for everyone to obey the law. That is why Christ came. Because man could not obey the law. You can't just say, be circumcised and then forget the rest of the law because that would be hypocrisy. So that's what Paul was telling them. He was saying that the law brings a curse. And then he says here in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse of ev- is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ came to redeem them and to redeem us. And so skipping down to verse 26, so you see the, the context here. So Paul was telling these Galatians that they are sons and heirs of Christ by faith in Christ, not by doing a work of circumcision. So it says in verse 26 of chapter 3, For you are all sons of God through what? Through faith in Christ Jesus, not through circumcision. For as many as you as are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ, Jew and Gentile. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father even so we he's talking about believers saints christians when we were children we were in bondage under the elements of the world that means the things of the world the philosophies of the world the ideologies of the world before we were saved we were under bondage to the world the whole world was under bondage to the elements of the world. But what did God do? Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God did what? Sent forth his son. Born of a woman. He was an actual person. He wasn't some ethereal spirit. He was born in the flesh. That's why Paul said he was born of all. He was born in the flesh. Jesus was an actual person who actually existed. He was born of a woman, born under the law to do what? 
redeemed those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, remember he began this section by saying we're all sons in verse 26. So he said, now because you're all sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So that is kind of the context of where we are this morning. So there are four principles we want to look at this morning. Number one, Christ has redeemed us. And because Christ redeemed us, we're free from the slavery of sin. We are adopted. We are sons and we are heirs. Okay. So first in verse four, it says, but when the fullness of the time had come. The idea behind this phrase is basically when the time was right. At the right time, at the exact moment, Christ was born when God had appointed him to be born. It was God's appointed time. Jesus came at just the right time in God's redemptive plan. From the time that he promised in the garden that Christ would crush the head of Satan and that Satan would bruise his heel, from that time that the Redeemer was announced, God's plan of redemption had already began. This was in the right time. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. Christ was born at the right time that God wanted him to be born. The world was perfectly prepared for God's work. And during this time that Christ was born, it was a time when the uh, Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome, uh, extended over almost all the civilized earth. And that travel and commerce were possible because of it. This is James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on this uh, time period. He says, great roads linked the empire of the Caesars, and there were diverse regions. And the peace of Rome was ruling and reigning. Pretty much there, were not, there was not a lot of wars and turmoil going on in the world. And so this was the time that Christ was born. And this time was also right because this was fascinating when I when I was studying this and I learned this exactly 483 years. Before Christ was born, it was prophesied by Daniel. In Daniel nine verses 24 through 26. The 483 years that was prophesied by Daniel was drawing to a close. So guess what? The fullness of time had come. And what happened? God sent forth his son. And again, I emphasize what it meant by born of a woman. He, he came not only as God's son, he sent forth his son, but he also came as the one born of a woman. He had humanity added to his deity. He was fully God, fully man. He was the God man, which is uh, theologians uh, referred to as he was fully God. He was fully man. He wasn't he wasn't half man and 
half God. He wasn't like Clark Kent and Superman. He wasn't like Bruce Wayne and Batman. He was fully God and he was fully man all at the same time. When Christ was born, guess what? He was still God. Although he was in the form of a man, he was still God. He became a man. He was the God man. Christ was not, and this is very important, Christ was not a man who became God. He was God who became man. Because Eastern religions refer to, and I mean Eastern, I mean Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, all those uh, East, Eastern Asian religions, they, they refer to Christ as an enlightened being. That he was a man who became a God, not even God, but he, he was somehow an enlightened being. That's what Eastern religions refer to, refer to Christ as, as someone who was enlightened like their deities are you know, become wise over time. But no, when he was born, he was God made flesh. And he was born of a woman, of course, it refers to the virgin birth. So what did he come to do? Get into our principles here. To redeem those who were under the law. He came to free us from what? The slavery of sin that's what he came to do because he is God he has the power and the resources to redeem us because he is God he had the power and the resources to rescue us from bondage to free us from the captivity of sin it's just like in a human sense Law enforcement and the FBI, they have the resources to rescue people who have been kidnapped, who have been held in bondage or in, in captivity. They have limited resources, but they have resources nonetheless. Christ, guess what? He has all resources. <clears throat> when he was born, he purchased us. Because Jesus is man, he has the right and ability to redeem us. In essence, Christ came to purchase us out of the slave market. Do you, you have to understand the nature of sin, saints? Sin is a taskmaster. Sin is a slave master. And I heard a preacher say this two weeks ago, and I think I mentioned it to you last week, and it was so true about sin sin never relents in other words sin never gives up it never does sin is not going to say okay I've done enough damage <laughs> I want to stop sin doesn't have sympathy sin is not an empath that means it's not empathetic sin doesn't feel sorry for you Sin is not going to say, oh, you poor little thing. I'm sorry what I'm doing to you. I'm sorry how I'm ruining your life and, and bringing all this misery upon you. I'm sorry that I'm leading you to a path of eternal destruction in hell. Sin is not going to apologize. Sin is not going to say, oh, you poor little thing. 
look at you, you're so pitiful. No. Sin is relentless. Sin is a tyrant. Sin seeks power. Sin seeks to destroy you. Ultimately. Sin seeks to devour you. That's what it does. As my old folks used to say, sin don't play. It doesn't. So because of that nature of sin, and sin is also corrupting to our human nature. We're so depraved because of what? Sin. We are conceived in what? Sin. No, we're conceived in sin. We're born in sin. Sin corrupts our thoughts. We daydream sinful daydreams sometimes. We, our, our thoughts just wander over into sin land. I think all of us would shudder at each other if we could read each other's thoughts. That's how corrupting sin is. Sin corrupts our speech the way that we we talk about others, talk to others, murmur under our breath about others, mutter behind our masks when people can't see our mouths moving. Sin corrupts. When we look at it like that, we see the great redemption that we have. What did Christ come to do? Again, redeem us from bondage to sin, from bondage to the old life, from bondage to the law, from bondage to the bodies of sin, giving our bodies over to sin. That's what he came to do. To redeem us from that bondage. And I say it all the time people. And this is the biblical truth. I don't care. How. Happy. Sinners. Try to make. Life look. They are. Miserable. While they're out trying to live their best life now. Guess what? This is as good as it gets for them. And I say it all the time. This life is good. Is as good as it gets for unbelievers. So they might as well do what? Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. This earth is as good as it gets. They can get all the, the big houses on the lake with the boat. They can have the hot wife. They can have the trophy wife, the, the trophy husband. They can make all the money and have all the claim they can have all the followers on Instagram and Twitter and all the blue checks they have all the praise and applause of man they can have people clamoring and screaming their names and rushing to get 
autographs from them and, and following their social media and all. They get all this world's acclaim. But that's the best that it's going to get for them. One day they're going to have to give an account. Why? Because they know they're in bondage to sin. They know they are. They know that sin is their master. They know that sin drives everything that they do. They're in bondage. And they even have the nerve to celebrate this time of year. They have the nerve to celebrate Christmas. But they're celebrating the wrong Christ. They're celebrating a false Christ. They're not celebrating by looking at why Christ came and that was to redeem them from bondage that they're in. But instead, they're celebrating their rebellion. And the great thing about this redemption is that when Christ de- redeems us, guess what? This redemption is eternal. It is an eternal redemption. The writer in Hebrews 9 and 12 says this. He says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Speaking of Christ, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Guess what? When we're saved, when Christ redeems us, guess what? It is an eternal redemption. Redemption. If it's eternal, guess what? That means that no one can take this redemption away from us. Signed, sealed, and delivered. This redemption in Christ, it is eternal. It is not temporal. It is not short-lived. It is an eternal redemption. That he might redeem those who are under the law. You all know the hymn uh, Amazing Grace was written by uh, John Newton. It says here, the man who wrote the most popular and famous hymn in America, Amazing Grace, knew how to remember this reality. He was an only child whose mother died when he was only seven years old. He became a sailor and went out to sea at 11 years old. As he grew up, he became the captain of a slave ship and had an active hand in the horrible degradation in, uh, and inhumanity of the slave trade. But when he was 23, on March 10th, 1748, when his ship was in imminent danger, of sinking out the coast of Newfoundland, he cried to God for mercy and he found it. He never forgot how amazing it was that God had received him as bad as he was. To keep it fresh in his memory, he fastened across the wall over the fireplace mantel of his study the words of Deuteronomy 15 and 15, which say, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you if we keep fresh in our mind what we once were and what we now are in Christ we will do well isn't that something 
when we know what God has redeemed us from, do we really realize? And then also realize those who are in bondage, what they are in bondage to and how strong that bondage is and how there's no other way out of bondage but through salvation in Jesus Christ who came at the fullness of time to do what? Redeem. Redeem us. Redeem those who are under bondage to the law. Our second principle is Christ. Because Christ has redeemed us, we are adopted. He says that we might receive the adoption as sons. It would be enough just being purchased out of slavery. But the great thing is that God's work does not end there. He purchases us from slavery. He doesn't just say, you're free to do whatever. But what else does he do? We receive an elevation as sons and daughters of God. Adoption is so great. It is so great. The God, the creator of heaven and earth, has adopted us as sons and daughters. And I'll say this, I always have to say it just as a reminder. And we have to always remind ourselves of this. Because people say it uh, with great uh, sentimentality, you know, uh, being sentimental about it. But it's just not true. Every person is not a child of God. By virtue of being born. Every person is not a child of God. Only those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. John 1 says that explicitly. If you look at John the first chapter. We've, we've uh, read this verse before. And this is a truth that we must understand. Because that speaks to when people say that. They're speaking to the false doctrine of the universal brotherhood of man and the universal fatherhood of God that is a heresy that everyone is a child of God and that all of us are brothers and sisters that couldn't be farther from the truth John 1 and 12 says this but to all who did receive him being Christ. What does it mean to receive Christ? To believe in him. To believe in what he did. To, to believe in his work. To receive his call to salvation. To all who receive, uh, receive him. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become what? Children of God. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but 
of God. Of means that that preposition means coming from or emanating from or originating with. A person becomes a child of God from God. It is not a person's will who does it. It is not a will of the flesh. It is not by virtue of being born into a certain family or a certain group of people. That makes adoption more special. It makes it more real and more meaningful to know that someone adopted you. And it makes it even more special for believers. You look at human adoption. Human adoption takes place, of course, in our broken, sinful world uh, for various reasons. One, when a mother has a child and, you know, doesn't want to raise the child for uh, whatever reasons. Uh, They used to have orphanages that children were taken to, and that's a a different commentary on that. Uh, I may explain just a little bit. But children were given to orphanages. And do you know this? You may not have known. But if you didn't know, you know now. And if you do know, then you know even more. The church started orphanages. The Christian church did. And when children were uh, mainly in, in the ancient days of you know, centuries ago, uh, the mortality rate for uh, adults was not that long. You know, you had men that went out to war. You know, uh, you had diseases and plagues and everything. And children were born in those type of situations. And, you know, they didn't have anyone to go. So the church, the Christian church and Catholic church uh, also started orphanages. And that's where the children would go. And, of course, Some orphanages did not do right by children because men are sinners. Uh, But for the most part, the church did well with orphanages, with taking care of the orphans because Scripture calls us to do that, to take care of widows and orphans. That's why Paul mentions that language because you had children who were born without their parents or lost their parents for uh, certain reasons. So the church actually started orphanages. Where it went wrong or where it went left was when the state got involved. Everything that the government touches is ruined. Do you know that churches ran nursing home facilities before the state got involved? Before the state got involved in family and children's services, churches primarily took that responsibility. Do you know that most hospitals were started by churches? But the state got involved, state meaning government, federal government, state government. The government came in and the church did what? Abdicated her responsibility, took the government's money. And whenever you take the government's money, you have to do whatever the government says to do with that money. The church abdicated or gave up her responsibility to take care of widows and orphans as as Paul Uh, charged us in his letters. But the adoption process took place through Christian orphanages at that time. Fast forward a millennia or two. 
you have DHR, you have other family service agencies that have kind of muddied the waters of the foster care system. It's a broken system. It's not a terrible system altogether, but it is a broken system. You have some children that go in and out of foster care. And so even despite that, God still shows mercy and God still shows grace to those children that had to be adopted. So I say all that to say that the human adoption system is not perfect. It is a well-meaning system, but it is a flawed system because it is run by who? Sinners. It's well-intentioned. You know, we have families in our church before who, who uh, adopted children. And we even, um, you know, at one time we had uh, two or three adopted children uh, that were part of our, uh, you know, church family. And we received that family and we received those uh, kids. Because we understand that it is not the children's fault that they are in that uh, situation. So that system of adoption is an imperfect picture of the adoption that we have as sons and daughters of the Most High, of God. That's what it is a picture of. That's what, that's what human adoption is a picture of. It's, it's a picture of taking someone who is not part of your family and doing what? Making them part of your family. A lot of children who are adopted, especially at a younger age, but even up to an older age, uh, they get their names changed. Okay, they, they go through that whole process. It's a very expensive process, but some of them go through a name change where they take on the name of their adopted parents. And so what our sister churches did a couple of years is we had, I know one time we had a, a foster parent appreciation uh, dinner at Grace Fellowship. Uh, where I spoke and some other uh, of the pastors spoke. You know, we were uh, showing appreciation for uh, the people that work at DHR because it's a very thankless job. And we learned through sitting and listening to those social workers the difficulties of the foster care system and the brokenness of it. It is a very broken system because the state has got involved in it. And because the church abdicated her responsibility. I'm not saying that the church was perfect in it, but the church was the one who was supposed to keep that going, but we gave that responsibility over to the state. And they became even more broken. But that broken system is still a good system as well, meaning because it's not uh, working to leave kids out there without a home. Just like the, the, the group home that we serve, the parents' home, all those kids, their situations is they can't even go into the adoption system because of how bad their home situation is. That's why they have to stay in group homes. So it is a well-meaning and well-intentioned system, but it is not a perfect system. So that's the human side of adoption. Now you have the great adoption, which is a greater and glorious and more perfect system or reality. And that is the adoption that happens when we are saved by God. And what does 
God do? He adopts us as his what? Sons and daughters. And Paul's imagery of adoption is pointing back to the Old Testament imagery. When God called Israel his son. God chose Israel. God adopted Israel as what? His children, as his own. They were out of all the nations that God called, could have called, he called who? Israel. So God adopted us. We are his sons. The creator of the universe. Made us his sons. I don't think we let that marinate enough. God didn't, it's not like God got lonely and say, I need some children, you know. No, he didn't, he, he, he didn't do that. He did not do that. God adopted us. Every human being is not a child of God. But every human being who receives Christ becomes a child of God. We have a close adoptive relationship with God. To the point that when we pray, we can say what? Our Father. The only ones who can call God Father are those who are his what? His sons, his children. No random kid can come off the street and call me dad. I'm going to look at him and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a bad resemblance of your father. <laughs> I don't know you. You're not my son. You're not my child. He can say, yes, you are. I say, no, I'm not your father. I'm sorry, but I'm not. And I can't treat you as such. So God receives us as sons. We receive the adoption. We don't recover it. We receive it. God receives us as his children. In the fullness of time, Jesus came to make us sons. We are adopted. And the great thing Paul also has in mind is the Roman custom of adoption at that time is where uh, adopted sons were given absolute equal privileges uh, in the family and equal status as heirs. So the adopted children in Roman families were not treated differently from the biological children. And that's the way it should be now. But guess what? We as Gentiles, as non-Jews, have the same rights and privileges as those Jews who have received Christ. That's what Paul was saying in the Galatian context. And in our context, guess what? Every single believer has equal rights and privileges as other believers. We all have a right to call God what? Father. We all have a right to say that we are sons and daughters of God. But not those who have not received him. And not only are we adopted. But because Christ redeemed us. We're sons. Sonship. He says, and because you are sons, in verse 6, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. It is fitting that those who are, in fact, 
sons have the spirit of the son in our hearts. And when and, and just parenthetically here. We receive the Holy Spirit into our what, hearts. It is given to us. We don't have to do anything. To receive the Holy Spirit. Christ gives us his spirit when we are adopted. And when are we adopted? When we're saved. But the scripture shows us that once a believer is saved, we are given the spirit of God. We don't have to go back and get a second blessing as uh, the Pentecostals teach. We already receive his spirit. So because we're sons, we have the right and we have the ability to call out to God and say, Daddy. Anytime. Anytime. We have an intimate relationship with God. As our father, we cry out, Abba. And Abba uh, was the address of a small child to his father. We have the same access and the same intimacy with God, the father that God, the son, Jesus Christ has. It's such a blessing that we can call on God as father. And what does a father do? A father takes care of his children. He defends his children. He protects his children. He loves his children. He serves his children. Just like a maternal father does, a, a human father does, rather a paternal father, not maternal, maternal is female. A paternal father. <laughs> a paternal father does what? He cares for his, 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 his children. No matter how much that child rebels, that father is still going to do what? Care for us. No matter how much we don't obey God as his child. Because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness, guess what? He still cares for us. That is such a blessing to be a son of the Most High. There's an old theologian, old Puritan that, 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 that said this quote. And he was using it as an illustration of, of God and his relationship with his children. He says, no king will be awakened at 3 a.m. Except for the cries of his child. No king. Will be awakened at 3 a.m. Except for the cries of his child. And he was speaking of how God responds to the cries of his children. No matter when and where. It's like a king will awaken at 3 a.m. If his child cried out to him. God, as our father, does the same thing. He's not going to say, okay, I'm asleep. Catch me at 7 o'clock. Because the Bible reminds me in Psalm 121 that he who watches Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God is all, he's a watchful father. He's such a loving father. He tells us in Matthew 7, we're asking it shall be given. Seeking you will find, knocking it shall be open. We can go to God any 
time do we get that? It, don't just, it doesn't just have to be in the morning during our quiet time or at night before we go to bed. When we're up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, guess what? God is still awake and we can cry out to God. Like I do sometimes, Lord, help me to get back to sleep. I got to go to work. <laughs> you know, Lord, give me, give me rest. Lord, help me to rest. Ease my worries. I cast my doubts and worries on you. I never forget, and this is a personal thing. You know, my father, he died in his sleep. And for about a month, it was hard for me to go to sleep because I, I worried about that. I remember I, uh, like a week after my father died, I went to Dr. Uh, Nuwagu on the ninth floor of that tower right there, or the seventh floor of that tower over there at RMC, and I got a stress test done because I want to make sure that my, uh, my pump was pumping right. That's how worried I was because my dad passed away in his sleep. I said, man, I was, I was, for about a month, I was, I was scared to go to sleep. I, I, I really was. I was, that was real. And I wanted to make sure that everything was pumping right, you know, that I, I just, I just was. That's, that's how terrified I was. I had to pray and ask God to ease my worries and, uh, you know, ease my fears about that. I cried out to God. And that's what we're, why? He's our father. And he hears us, and he cares about us, and he loves us. And guess what? What father doesn't want to hear from his children? That is the great privilege that we have. That's Christian privilege. We have privilege. I mean, when I preached through uh, Second Peter, I talked about the privilege that we have. You know, they all talk about white privilege and all that nonsense. Guess what? There's Christian privilege. As Christians, guess what? We have privileges. Why? Because we are sons and daughters. Of who? The most high God, the creator God, the one who made the heavens and the earth. We are his children. And guess what? We have privilege. It's not something that we take pride in, but we are grateful for. We thank God that, Lord, I can come to you anytime and you will hear me. Why? Because I am your child. And you will answer when I call. That is a privilege. Just like a child in a human sense has privileges with their own parents that other children don't. I will never treat someone else's child better than I treat my own. Because that child is my child. And that child has a privilege of being a Haygood, a son of Ronald and Francia Haygood. So guess what? They're going to get top billing treatment because they are our children. And God does the same to a more perfect degree with us. This is the Christ that we celebrate this time of year. This is why in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. So that we could become sons who cry out. Abba, Father. Thank you, Lord. And then lastly, because Christ redeemed us, we become heirs. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if you are a son, then you are what? An heir. An heir. Paul says in Romans 8 and 17 that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. It's a, it's a, just think about the progression here. First, we're set free from slavery to sin. Then we are adopted and declared sons. And then as sons, we're made heirs. So basically, you go from being a slave to being what? An heir to inheriting. You go from being the lowest on the totem pole to the highest. You go from the outhouse to the penthouse. Anybody ever used an outhouse before? It is a very memorable experience. <laughs> okay. And there were different types of outhouses. Because if you were like my old folks, my great grandmama who lived out in the country, she just had a hole in the ground. Some of them had the plumbing, you know, the kind of sump pump system that pumped it out. But my great grandmama Drusilla just had a hole in the ground with the little thing around it with the stool sitting on top of it. And they had to put lime or whatever that stuff is in it to, uh, to kill it. That was, the, that was the pool outhouse. So you had different types of outhouses. <laughs> but it's a very memorable experience. So when they say going from the outhouse to the penthouse, it means going from the worst to the best. A five-star hotel restroom that has heated tile floors. Okay, and, and you know, but that's the imagery that we have of being a slave. You, you, you're at the bottom. You're, you're, you're at the low end. I guess that was a good illustration. I hope it was. But that's what we go from. We go from the outhouse. We're going from the spiritual outhouse. The worst, the, the dregs of society which slaves were. And now we're going to being what? An heir. Inheriting eternal life. Co-heirs with Christ. Reigning and ruling with him. That is such a great and wonderful truth. A great progression and not only we are an heir we are an heir of God through Christ we inherit God himself the richest inheritance of all is to be an heir of God and this happens through Christ through the mediation of Christ as our what redeemer remember this began by saying in the fullness of time God sent his sons to redeem us. And the result of that redemption through Christ is that we become heirs. We're released from slavery. We become sons and adopted. The spirit of Christ is in our hearts and our status as heirs of God. Are the birthrights that we have. They're given to us in Jesus. We receive all this through Christ and as believers as we look at this season and every day of our life these are things that we should enjoy this is why we should enjoy every day of our Christian life 
that we are heirs this time of year. We shouldn't just wait to this time of year to be joyful in this reality. We should always live knowing that, man, we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We receive a heavenly inheritance. And the great thing about being an heir of God is no one can take our inheritance from us. And guess what? We can't squander it. We can't squander this inheritance because it belongs to who? God. We can't ruin it. We can't do like the trust fund child does that, that gets the money and goes out and blows it and gets on drugs and, and loses the mansion to foreclosure and, and, and all those things. You know, we went to a wedding yesterday with one of Fran's uh, co-workers in uh, Odenville. It was at a barn. And just a couple of uh, things about it right quick. We, the, the parking was in a horse stable, you know. <laughs> Not a horse stable, but a horse pen. Because I, t- I told Fran we pulled up. I said, this is a horse pen, you know. <laughs> and it, it was raining and, and wet yesterday. So, you know, you're looking down on both sides of your vehicle and, you know, you see, you know, yeah, it was a horse pen. I guess they tried to push it all to the, the fence. But anyway, we, uh, you know, went inside the barn and everything and, and it started raining a lot. And the more it rained, the more you smell the, uh, you know, the horse stuff. And then we went to the reception. The reception was like a half, uh, a half mile down the road. At a, I'd never been to houses big before in my life. I'm, I'm just a country boy. It's like a hundred people. There. A house big enough to hold a hundred people is a big house. But it was the father, the, the in-laws of the of the bride. Uh, he owned a steel company in Pale City. Sold it to one of his uh, sons a couple years ago. He's an older gentleman, but it, it's a beautiful, big, giant house. I mean, it's humongous. But as a friend, I was talking. Um, you know, we, we talked about how you have very wealthy people. Sometimes they may have that wayward son or that wayward daughter that just kind of, you know, falls far from the tree. Every, almost every family has that. And you hear that among rich people, right? You know, you hear about the one child. It's got to be one of them. That's the, the, the ne'er-do-well, the one that never does right. And they, they're the ones that don't get the business or the ones who are very envious or, or they come back when the mom and dad dies and tries to get all the money. You see it in a lot of movies and stuff. There are no heirs like that in God's family. There are no heirs like that in God's family. All of us receive the same blessings as being heirs of God through Christ. There's no bad seed in God's kingdom. There's no bad seed amongst the heirs of Christ. All of us who have been redeemed through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, we're all heirs of God. And we live as sons and daughters of God. We don't always obey God perfectly, but the great blessing is that does not remove us. From his family. Thank God for that. Our sin is covered by. The son. The blood of Jesus. We're clothed in his righteousness. We will never lose our inheritance in Christ. 
We may not always live like heirs. But that does not remove the fact that we are heirs. And that is a great encouragement. That our inheritance is not based on us. We're heirs of God through Christ. And what is Christ? He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our high priest. He advocates our righteousness before the Father day and night. The Bible says he intercedes for us day and night. So we have to never fear losing our inheritance. What a great blessing. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the fullness of time when it came that you sent your son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem to free us from sin, to adopt us, to make us sons and daughters, to make us heirs. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what comes against us in this world, no matter who comes against us, that we're heirs. And no one can take our inheritance away. No one can squander the inheritance that we have in you through your son Jesus Christ thank you Lord for such a great blessing and a great reality in Christ's name I pray amen amen I pray